Thank you very much, and it's, it's a great honor to be here to speak in front of uh, this e illustrious crowd. Um, this will be a very different talk, and uh, I want to congratulate the organizers uh, for uh, 20 years of this particular Congress. And in this spirit, what I'd like to do is to start off with where we were 20 years ago, where we are now, and uh, this talk will focus primarily on gastric cancer. So let's start. So let's go back to the turn of the century, and uh, what we suspected at the time was that gastric cancer was a heterogeneous disease, that's the point of work, where you have, um, this was reflected at the histology site, where every different individual had gastric cancer, looks very different in terms of their architecture, in terms of their cancer cells, their stromal cells, their blood vessels, and then at the turn of the century, we had the introduction of platforms like DNA microarrays, where we could then begin to profile patterns of gene expression. And, and then also you could see that different tumors had different patterns of gene expression that one could more or less relate to different biological programs occurring in the primary cancer. Now, let's go on now to where we are today, and with the advent of new technologies beyond microarrays and next-generation sequencing, methylation arrays, RNA sequencing, we are now do recognize that gastric cancer is a fairly heterogeneous disease. Uh, this is the landmark paper from the USA TCGA subgroup that identifies at least four different subtypes of a gastric cancer that are referred to as chromosomal instability, microsatellite instability, genome-stable, and Epstein-Barr virus. Two of these particular subgroups are, have similar counterparts in colorectal cancer, but then two of these seem to be very, very specific to gastric cancer. I won't go too much into the molecular features of these subtypes because these have been uh, already explained in many different talks. But suffice it to say that at the turn of 2018, we now know that gastric cancer is a very heterogeneous disease. The question now is what can we do about it in order to maximize outcomes for the majority of gastric cancer patients? And in that, it's a very nuanced question about what we need to understand what are the things that we cannot change, what are the things that we can, and hopefully the wisdom to know the difference, to echo the words of uh, St. Francis. So in that spirit, I'm going to be focusing today on two different stories uh, that sort of like probe this idea of how we can tackle heterogeneity uh, from two different angles. And the first one is going to be what may come across as a very, very simple idea that we really need to understand what are the most frequent mutations or genetic events that are occurring in gastric cancers. And for this, I'm going to be taking you away from the... Um, protein coding genes into the dark matter of the human genome, which is the non-coding genome. And secondly, we'll also be focusing upon this idea that perhaps prevention is better than cure, and we'll be trying to understand who is actually at risk for the development of gastric cancer, and maybe we can try to intercept that disease a bit early by focusing on a particular pre-malignant condition that we refer to as intestinal metaplasia. So I hope you find these two talks interesting. So let's uh, go on and let's talk about the first one. What are the most frequent genetic mutations that are happening in gastric cancers? And for some of you, this may seem very funny because you may think, well, don't we already know that? And we do and we don't at the same time. And let me illustrate that in the next slide. So most of you have probably seen uh, pictures like this or even this one, which is also from the TCGA subgroup where they have focused upon the most frequent uh, 
protein coding mutations in gastric cancers. For the purposes of this particular slide, we've excluded the microsatellite instability subgroups. But what you can see is that P53 is probably the most frequently mutated gene, followed by genes like RIT1A, which us and some other groups also had a hand in identifying. And after that, you have percentages of about KRAS, PIC3CA, at about 12%, 6%, and so on. So this seems to be the landscape of driver genes in gastric cancer, and for this, it's a bit very, very important in, understand, in shaping our understanding of gastric cancer molecular heterogeneity. But I want to remind you that all of these studies have primarily focused upon the part of the genome that corresponds to protein-coding genes, otherwise known as exons. And if you look in the context of the exons to the rest of the whole uh, uh, human genome, you can find that the coding region actually only represents 1% or 2% of the 3 billion bases that are part of our human genome. And so the question is, well, what's happening in that other 98% of the genome? And that really hasn't been explored, particularly in the context of gastric cancer. Um, and so we want to do that, but first I want to try to convince you that there are good reasons to expect that mutations occurring not inside the protein-coding genes may plausibly give you effects that one can contribute towards the development of cancer. So in this cartoon here, what we have in, in dark blue is a gene, and in dark blue are the exons corresponding to the protein-coding units. But then flanking and surrounding this, these protein-coding units are other bits or regulatory elements that may are also very important for that particular gene's function. For instance, uh, you have the uh, promoters. Let me see if I can make. Sorry, the slide's not moving. Sorry. What is the problem? No, this, oh, there we go. Okay. So maybe I won't slide this. So for instance, on, on, on the left-hand side, if you look in orange, you have the five prime untranslated regions where the promoter regions are. And on the left-hand side, you have the three prime untranslated region that probably has a lot of binding sites for microRNAs that negatively regulate the expression of that gene. Even further, if you look on the further right-hand side on the orange, you have distal enhancer elements that then can loop and can sit very, very far away from the gene, they can also if they influence patterns of gene expression. So thinking collectively, one can think that mutations in these non-coding regulatory elements will also be very important in terms of driving cancer gene expression. And in fact, in terms of looking at other cancer types, we now see that this appears to be the case. So for instance, it, we now know that in melanoma, for instance, if you look at the, the gene encoding telomerase, third, that promoter mutations are very common in melanoma that increase the expression of third oncogene without changing the protein coding nature of the third gene itself. Also, an example, in a particular type of leukemia called TAL, what we find are that there are certain in, in, uh, micro-insertions in the enhancer elements that can also drive the expression of those, these, these particular target genes. So in general, we do know that there are emerging cases of uh, genes in the non-coding non promoters that influence cancer gene expression, but this is pretty much it 
as far as our understanding of non-coding promoter mutations, of non-coding mutations in the non-coding genome. And so non-coding driver mutations still remain unknown for many cancer types, including gastric cancer. So what is the difficulty in finding these driver mutations? And for that, we need to be able to understand, from a cancer genomic standpoint, what is the formal definition of a driver mutation. So the, a driver mutation has nothing to do with the function of that mutation. In, from a strict standpoint, a driver mutation is, re, is, a, is a particular element that is mutated above the background mutation rate in that particular region. So as a cartoon here, what we have are two regions. And if you have, in here you have an absolute number of four mutations, and in here you have three mutations, but if the background mutation rate of this particular locus in that region is high, then this is not considered a driver mutation because it's just following the background mutation rate. However, over here, if the number of mutations is above the background mutation rate, then this actually corresponds to a driver mutation, which seems to be emphasize positive selection, and then we can go in and interrogate its function. The challenge with doing this for the whole genome is that the background mutation rate across the, uh, the human genome, particularly in a cancer genome, varies drastically across the chromosome. It's influenced by replication timing, it's influenced by changes in epigenetics, it's influenced by changes in sequence context. So what one needs then is to be able to have a very accurate background model across the entire genome, and one then needs to have a lot of samples, which can then we can challenge that background model to try to find what are the key driver mutations in the non-coding genome. So we've done that. What we've, in, this is a work that's been done with Anders Skandarab, who is a computational biologist from the Genome Institute of Singapore. And what we've done essentially is to assemble the world's largest collection of gastric cancer whole genome sequencing, uniformly pre-processed them, and identified using consensus mutation calling, point mutations, insertions and deletions, as well as structural variations that tell us amplifications and tell us particular breakpoints. So we now have mutation calls for over 200 gastric cancer genomes. This takes a long time because this is run on a supercomputer. Then what we now need is that background correction, that background uh, mutation model. And for that, what we've done is to take in over 200 different features. We call them covariates, things that might influence the background mutation rate. These range from epigenetic sequence context. I'll give you an example in the next slide. And then look to see which are the most informative sequence and epigenetic features to create that correct down background mutation model. And once we have the background mutation model, and once we have the mutation calls, we can then begin to combine those two and see if there are any driver mutations in a non-coding genome. This is an example of what we refer to when we talk about a background model. Um, it turns out that the different features in the genome, epigenetics, local mutation rate, replication timing, different types of signatures associated with different mutational contexts, and the, the influence of all of these differs depending upon the type of mutation that you are analyzing, because this is essentially embedded in the, in the mechanism by which these mutations occur. 
So for instance, for single nucleotide variants, it turns out that the, if your sample it has a lot of mutations, this is a very trivial example, you can find that this is actually something that needs to be corrected for because your background mutation model is going to have a very high number of mutations. However, for indels, for instance, the strongest uh, covariate that predicts for a high indel rate is essentially your sequence context because these mutations tend to occur in poly A or poly T tracks. So I don't want to get into the details of this, but suffice to say that after we do, we do all of this correction model, we have about uh, 200 uh, whole genome mutation calls. We can put them both together and ask the key question, does anything survive above the background to give us driver mutations in a non-coding genome? And the answer is yes. So here we are not looking at protein coding regions. We are only looking at non-protein coding regions. And anything above this threshold over here across the entire genome is a location, a hotspot in the genome that has a above background um, mutation rate. There are about 30 nine of them, and surprisingly, about one-third of them, 11, correspond to a very specific genomic feature in the genome that refers to a binding site for a protein called CTCF that I'll introduce you in the next slide. And in terms of these CTCF binding sites for the remainder of this talk, I'll, these, I'll refer to these as CBSs for CTCF binding sites. So for some reason, these CTCF binding sites seem to have, have very high mutation rates in gastric cancer. We are a bit concerned because there's some evidence from colorectal cancer that, that, that in terms of CTCF binding sites seem to have very high mutation rates in general. But even after correcting for elevated CBS mutation rates, about 11 of these sites still pass significance, suggesting that these are selected for and are exceptionally mutated at a very high frequency. So, what is a CTCF binding site and what is CTCF? Let me uh, talk to you about it in the next slide. So, CTCF is not a transcription factor. It's not a kinase. It's not a receptor. It's a protein that regulates high-level genome architecture. So, in terms, when, when every piece of DNA sits in your nucleus, it is not a linear piece of DNA, but it's wrapped up in different uh, chromatin and uh, different topological domains that essentially form different territories that then form different topology-associated domains. And CTCF, along with its partner, Cohesin, is a key factor that governs the division of these domains. The preservation of these domains is absolutely critical for normal cellular homeostasis for two reasons. Number one, if you lose this, you, you, you produce genomic instability. And secondly, if you lose these particular domains, enhancer elements from one domain can then transcriptionally activate genes in surrounding domains. So you also perturb the network wiring of the transcriptome at the same time. So one can then think that perhaps if one mutates these CTCF binding sites, one can then set up uh, the milieu for altered genome instability as well as for altered transcriptional patterns, which are two hallmarks of cancer. So we've done a bit more uh, digging into these particular CTCF binding sites. And what we've done here is to ask the question, of all of the hotspots that we see that are past the background mutation model and those that are correspond to the CTCF binding sites, are they associated with any particular TCGA subtype of gastric cancer? And the answer is yes over here. So it turns out that they are highly associated with the chromosomal unstable version of gastric cancer. And so this suggests that this is not a 
these data mutations are not due as seen across the entire spectrum, but very specifically confined to a particular subtype of gastric cancer. And in terms of the overall frequency, it's 25% here. And I'll remind you in the, in the slide that P53 mutations are the most frequent event, 50%, R1 is 40%. So these CTCF binding sites and in, in the mutations essentially correspond to the second most frequent genetic event occurring in gastric cancers. Um, we've done other further uh, analysis over here, and you've seen that uh, it turns out that if you have a CTCF binding site, you actually have a uh, higher proximity to a local chromosomal break consistent with this setting up genomic instability. In the interest of time, I won't go so much into this, but finally, the, what does this mean in terms of a clinical use case? Well, it turns out that if one can then begin to compress all of the, the CTCF binding sites and the hotspots into a very targeted assay combined with the other frequently mutated genes, one can then conceive of a liquid biopsy test that covers almost 80% of all gastric cancers, suggesting that then this could be used as a general way to track tumor burden in this particular very deadly disease. Um, so the summary of this particular talk in that suggests that total genome analysis of gastric cancer reviews frequent mutations at CTS binding sites. These hotspots are mutated, even adjusting for covariates. They occur at frequencies exceeded only by P53 mutations in cases of chromosensibility, and they're associated with local chromosomal breaks and regional changes, and they're very specifically observed in gastrointestinal malignancies. So again, watch this space. We think this is a new process that we need to still to figure out, but hopefully there'll be a clinical use case through the use of liquid biopsies. In the, next, in the last 10 minutes, I'm going to shift gears and focus upon much earlier on in time uh, and ask the critical question, who exactly gets gastric cancer? And we focus upon intestinal metaplasia. Now, the reason why we want to focus on this is because of something like this. This is a review that we wrote in Cancer Discovery that summarizes what typically happens in a metastatic gastric cancer patient. In the original tumor, if you sequence the original tumor and the lymph node metastasis, the, um, the, the genes, the mutations look different. If you compare the original tumor to the distant metastasis, the mutations look different. If you compare the, these to the circulating tumor DNA, the, again, the, the mutations look different. So the, the point here is that all of these that also change as a consequence of therapy, that you are looking at a situation where this tumor in a metastatic setting is highly evolving and changing very rapidly. So in order to tackle this, perhaps what we need to do is to enhance our efforts at stopping the tumor even before it starts, which then suggests that we should need to have more efforts in screening and early detection. And for that, we need to know how gastric cancer develops. So we now know that most gastric cancers follow a multi-step carcinogenic sequence uh, seen over here. And I want to highlight two very important factors in this sequence. One of them is Helicobacter pylori, the causative agent of gastric cancer. It's, it's responsible if you have infection, you're at risk. If you don't have infection, your risk dramatically plummets. The second one is a pre-malignant condition called metaplasia, which when the gastric lining changes into an architecture that looks like the colonic lining. And once you have metaplasia, your risk of gastric cancer also increases. The challenge is that very, it's only a small fraction of patients with metaplasia that actually progress on to gastric cancer. 
And so if we can understand who those high-risk patients are with metaplasia, we can then begin to follow them, screen them more intensively, and perhaps intercept the disease before it happens. So we want to know who, which intestinal metaplasia patients will actually progress on to gastric cancer. In order to do this, you actually need a longitudinal cohort where you recruit patients before they have gastric cancer, but with metaplasia, and follow them on and see who eventually develops the disease. So we've done that also. This is a cohort called the Gastric Cancer Epidemiology Program. It's a high-risk cohort of about 3,000 patients with different types of uh, gastric symptoms, atrophy, metaplasia. At en enrollment, they are assessed, endoscopies are done, and they are um, cat uh, catalogued. And they are then sequentially followed for five years. And at year one, year three, and re five, repeat biopsies are taken along with blood. At the end of five years, we get to see who develops gastric cancer and who develops not. Because we have data from all the baseline before they had, this allows us to make causal in inferences in a way that cross-sectional studies cannot be done. So we've done, we've done the translational biomarker study of the GSEP cohort. In this first study, we focus upon the cases that have the, most high, the highest risk of uh, developing gastric cancer. So these are patients with met metaplasia, most of them are moderate or marked, meaning that they have a, a lot of met metaplasia in their stomach. They're all Chinese, and again, for Helicobacter pylori, uh, not surprisingly, all of them are positive for Helicobacter pylori serology, meaning that at some point in their life, they actually were uh, encountered with affected with Helicobacter pylori. Keep this in mind because I'm going to get back to this uh, at the end of the talk. So we've sequenced all of these, and we've done the epigenomic profiling of all of these cases, and we can then look at different molecular features, mutations, amplifications, to see what are the strongest predictors of progression to gastric cancer. In terms of DNA mutations, if you compare normal gastric mucosa, mild IM, developed IM and fully developed gastric cancers, we can actually see that met intestinal metaplasias have a slightly elevated mutation rate, but much, much, much lower compared to gastric cancers, suggesting that when you develop IM, your mutation rate is actually still quite low. Consistent with this, in, in contrast to developed gastric cancers where the P53 mutation rate and I1 mutation rates are very high, in, uh, in IMs, the mutation rates are very, very low. But we were to confirm by immunohistochemistry here that in a P53 mutated case, we see accumulation of P53 mutations of the, of the protein in the intestinal metaplasia cells. And in the R1A mutated case, we see loss of R1A in the metaplasia cells. And we first confirmed this by laser capture my microdissection. Um, so, mutations are low. How about copy number alterations, which refers to larger scale structural changes? It turns out that for most of the IMs in red over here, that the genome is quite silent, but there is a subfraction, about 10% of cases, that have amplifications of a particular region of a, a chromosome 8. And when we zero in on that region, it turns out that they triangulate upon a master regulator of cell proliferation called the MIC oncogene, suggesting that as a, in certain cases of IM, they're actually amplifying an expression program that drives their cellular proliferation. We've looked at telomeres, which are the lengths at the ends of the chromosome that if they start to erode, will create genomic instability. And here also we find that when you progress from normal to mild IM to IM, your telomeres become shorter, again, being a setup for genomic instability. 
Um, I want to talk a bit about Helicobacter pylori because, again, this is the causative agent of gastric cancer. And so it makes sense that you should know if your patient is positive for Helicobacter pylori or not because there is something you can do about it, which is antibiotic e e e eradication. So in our cohort, we had about 135 subjects that had a positive uh, Helicobacter infection by serology, suggesting that at some point in their life, they had encountered Helicobacter pylori, but that doesn't tell you if that patient has active infection or not. So in order to assess if they have active in, in infection, uh, all of these biopsies were reviewed by a, a histopathologist, and 15 cases of them were had positive helicobacter pylori, and these were subsequently subjected to antibiotic eradication. And we wondered what is the correlation between genome sequencing of the biopsy towards the histopathological findings. And it turns out that all 15 of uh, these cases, if you look at the DNA sequencing, they all have helicobacter pylori DNA, so that's consistent. And when I say they have DNA, I'm essentially saying that we can reconstruct the entire helicobacter pylori genome from, these, uh, from the DNA sequencing that we have in the, in, in the DNA uh, biopsy. So this is a very comprehensive coverage of helicobacter pylori. But what was surprising to us, that of about 120 subjects with negative pathology by the, by the histology, we still detected about a quarter of them that had positive helicobacter pylori DNA. And so we wondered what was, what was the reason for that. The first thing we did was to exclude the possibility that, that detection of DNA is due to residual uh, DNA lying around in the stomach. We didn't think that was the case, but we had to show it. And so we had uh, biopsies because we were following these, these individuals over many years. We have uh, cases which of, the, of, of those infected patients that were pre-eradication and post-eradication by antibiotics. And when you do a post-eradication, you completely lose all of your helicobacter pylori DNA, suggesting that uh, helicobacter pylori, in, if the pylori is dead, is actually very, very transient in the human stomach. And then we then asked the pathologist to look very, very carefully at those cases that were histology negative originally, but were positive by sequencing. And, but when we use a specialized GEMSA stain, which is not routinely used in our center for detecting helicobacteria, we can actually begin now to see very, very low-level patterns of helicobacter pylori there that were previously missed by histology, suggesting that these individuals could potentially have been benefited from e eradication. It's just that they were not picked up in, in the first place. Um, one more point before I get to the outcome. We've also done DNA methylation profiling on these cases, and compared to DNA sequencing, what is surprising is that the amount of DNA methylation or epigenetic changes in these uh, samples is profound. So when you become metaplasia, you're in the, in the antrum on the body, your levels of DNA methylation go up very, very significantly, suggesting that DNA methylation changes may actually precede the onset of genetic changes, and there's a subgroup that's hypermethylated. So when we have all of these different factors, mutations, amplifications, telomere lengths, uh, presence of helicobacter pylori, methylation changes, which of these is most associated with clinical outcome? And so we can now do this experiment here because we have the outcome after five years, and there are three different categories of outcome. There is persistent, meaning that the IM after five years doesn't change. There's regression, meaning that after five years, the IM went away, and we could not see it after re repeat surveillance. And there's progression where then the IM in that patient, there, there, there was an element of development of dis dysplasia, low-grade dysplasia, high-grade dysplasia, or early gastric cancer. 
And so we've then looked at these different factors, DNA mutations, DNA methylation, telomere lengths, and copy number alterations, and asked the question, which of these factors are most significantly associated with either regression in blue or progression? And it turns out that low levels of mutations and low levels of DNA methylation changes are most strongly associated with regression, meaning it goes away. Okay. While on, on the other hand, in terms of pro, pro, progression, you have a telomere length and a copy number of alterations. So suggesting that what is the pivotal transition from a, to define a high-risk IM is not your absolute number of DNA mutations, but rather your larger-scale alterations, your, your lower telomere lengths, your changes in amplifications that is most pre predictive of uh, the development of gastric cancer. So in summary, this uh, work uh, suggested that genomic profiling reveals that IMs exhibit low mutational burdens compared to gastric cancers. In general, P53 and RNA mutations are rare in metaplasia. Some IMs, I haven't had time to talk about this, but this is a new driver gene that we see in the IMs. They have chromosome 8Q amplifications and shortened telomeres. Sequency detects more IM patients with active helicobacter pylogen than histology. And then collectively, depending upon what type of alterations you look at, we can either predict subsequent GC progression or regression, suggesting the stage for what we can now call as prevision, pre precision prevention. By targeting those very high-risk IM patients, we can now begin to maybe intercept gastric cancer before it develops, but before it develops a lot of intratumor heterogeneity. Thank you very much. I'll stop there.